0: You're listening to Earshot from WXXI News. I'm Veronica Volk. This week, Rochester's Black Deaf community speaks up about barriers to health care.
1: Just because we're Black and Deaf, please don't ignore us.
0: Plus, a local museum grapples with their cultural identity as they plan their first Juneteenth celebration.
1: It's the nameless and faceless that we have to pay homage to.
0: That and more from your local news podcast, Earshot. The pandemic shed light on some of the existing disparities within the black community, particularly in access to health care. According to the COVID tracking project from The Atlantic, black people have died at 1.4 times the rate of white people in this country. But for those who are black and deaf, there are additional barriers some invisible to hearing people. Our
2: reporter April Franklin wanted to learn more about this. She has this story. Leanne Valentine is a black deaf woman and communicates using American Sign Language. Valentine spoke to us through an interpreter. She says last year she had a gallbladder issue and tried to seek treatment.
1: Give me an MRI or whatever you need to do, but I'm absolutely, I can't sleep, I can't eat, I'm really in pain here.
2: But at the doctor's office, Valentine says her interpreter wasn't helpful.
1: And the interpreter said, oh, she wants an MRI, but her tone of voice was very even, very, you know, not very inflected or very neutral or monotone. And that's how she was interpreting me.
2: That barrier in communication can affect the deaf person's experience at the doctor's office and overall trust in the medical community. For Black Deaf people, that mistrust is sometimes more amplified. Black Deaf people communicate using their own sign language with nuances that vary from standard ASL. Valentine says once she received a Black interpreter, she was able to convince her doctor to give her an MRI.
1: She actually interpreted what I said with the intent and the tone, plus my emotions, and she conveyed that to the doctor, and the doctor's like, oh, okay, okay, fine, fine. And so finally, they took some action. And I, they found out I needed emergency surgery.
2: In a healthcare setting, it can make all the difference to have a black interpreter. But only 13% of the more than 10,000 sign language interpreters in the US identify as people of color. ASL interpreter Christy Love is trying to change that at times that's important to be able to relate to somebody culturally. Love is the coordinator and one of the founders of RIT's Randleman program. The program provides training and mentorship for interpreters of color. One of the challenges of interpreting in a medical setting is that ASL is not a direct translation of English. Valentine agrees. She says terms like heartburn and stroke are foreign to some deaf people because they aren't often used in conversation. Using an interpreter, she explains these language gaps.
1: All these medical conditions, people don't understand. They don't have access for them. And so it's hard for them to explain what's going on.
2: These barriers can also affect outreach to the local Black Deaf community. That's been especially problematic during the COVID-19 pandemic. J.T. Reed is a board member of the nonprofit Partners in Deaf Health, he is also black and deaf and spoke through an interpreter. He says he didn't see a large turnout of black deaf people during vaccine clinics. I honestly maybe have seen two or three black deaf people there. That was it for the vaccine. So I'm like, where are the rest of my community? Um, you know, it seems like they just did not get the information. And that's very unfortunate. Valentine says outreach in the black deaf community will take extra effort. She blames years of discrimination for fear and mistrust in the healthcare system. She says Rochester's Black Deaf community is small but accessible, and she encourages hearing people in and outside of medical facilities to spend time with them.
1: Just because we're Black and Deaf, please don't ignore us. We want to (laughs) thrive.
0: April Franklin is a reporter for WXXI News. She joins me now to talk a little bit more about this story. April, thanks
2: for joining me. Thank you for having me, Veronica. So, what what brought you to this story in the first place? Um, actually, TikTok, TikTok. I've been finding a lot of stories, and I came across this young lady who teaches people Black American Sign Language, um, much like Black people communicate to each other with their own nuances of language and slang, um, what we call code-switching in our own communities, deaf black people do the same thing. So when you looked into the black deaf community here in Rochester, what
0: was it about the experience of this community that led you to these health disparities?
2: Well, um, you know, at first, I just wanted to learn about black deaf people in general in Rochester and where this community is. And as I dug more into it, I realized that the community is kind of spread out. It's not that large. Obviously, they're a minority within a minority, so it's not going to be that big. Um, But, you know, we're still technically in a pandemic. And. As we all know, the pandemic has shown lots of disparities for African-American people in general. And so I wonder, because of this added communication gap, how does that affect people who are both Black and deaf?
0: And I think your piece does a really good job of illustrating that. The one question that I keep coming back to, though, is like, how does this happen in a place like Rochester, where there seem
2: to be so many resources for people who are deaf? Quite frankly, racism. It didn't even really occur to me that black deaf people, they're first and foremost black (laughs) before they're anything else. And so they experience the same microaggressions and the same racism in, you know, navigating through social systems just like any other black person would. So their experience is not too different from mine. It's just that they happen to be deaf. Can
0: you give me an example of that experience, maybe from somebody that you talked to?
2: Yes, Leanne Valentine, who shared her story um, as she... In the piece getting emergency surgery she actually grew up in rochester she went to rochester school for the deaf and she's now a family and marriage counselor or i think therapist actually um and she says that growing up she wasn't really exposed to a lot of different career choices she feels that you know her education system kind of failed her because her teachers and role models didn't really see highly in her and her other black peers because they were black. She feels like a ra- racism impacted a lot of um, the way that she grew up. We actually have a cut from Leanne that didn't make it into her story.
0: Here she is speaking to us through an interpreter talking about this experience.
1: I have met a lot of black deaf people, you know, in my age group especially. And I've asked them, you know, what did they tell you in school? What could you be when you grow up? Were you going to be a scientist? Were you going to be like, you know, fly an airplane? Were you going to, what were you going to do? Most of them said, no, 90% would say, no, we never were told anything like that. So their access to careers and to language and communication is much lower. And they struggle to get to the point where they can actually succeed in this life.
0: April, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. April Franklin's story is called Rochester's Black Deaf Community Speaks Up About Barriers to Health Care. You can find it on our website, along with portraits from our photographer, Max Schulte, at WXXINews.org. Mm-hmm. Tucked into the southwest corner of Monroe County is the hamlet of Mumford, home of the Genesee Country Village and Museum. It calls itself the largest living history museum in New York State. And stepping into the village is like stepping back in time, specifically to the 19th century, complete with authentic buildings and historical reenactments of daily life. But like a lot of institutions of its kind, the museum largely focuses on the lives of white European people while glossing over the experiences of native people and people of color. Well, this year marks their first Juneteenth celebration. Rebecca Rafferty is the life editor at City Magazine. She wrote this story and is here with me now to talk about it. Rebecca, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So first of all, I'm really excited to be having this conversation, especially since President Joe Biden just signed a bill to recognize Juneteenth as a federal holiday. A little history lesson, of course. Juneteenth marks the anniversary of June nineteenth, 1865 when federal troops went into Galveston, Texas, to enforce the emancipation of a quarter of a million enslaved people. That was more than two years after the Emancipation Proclamation ended slavery in the U.S. So, Rebecca, what is the museum doing? What's the celebration going to look like?
3: The Juneteenth celebration is going to have a dramatic reading of the Emancipation Proclamation. There's going to be opportunities for audiences to explore the lives of both famous historic black individuals, as well as the average families who were living in Western New York at the time. One of the historic interpreters I talked to is David Shakes. The most importantly, I always tell people when I do uh, presentations is, it's the nameless and faceless that we have to pay homage to because we don't know them. We, we know what Frederick Douglass, we know Harriet <laughs> Tubman, we know some of the icons. I like to take a moment to say, hey, there are people who did things to help other people and help causes that we will never know. So David is the artistic director, I believe, of the North Star Players in Rochester, and he also has decades of experience working with museums and institutions around the nation, um, doing historic interpretation, but he is also participating at uh, the Genesee Village on Juneteenth. How does um, their Juneteenth celebration mark a departure from their current programming? So up until this point, the programming has largely focused on, in terms of representation of Black Western New Yorkers, has focused on pivotal historic figures, but not very much uh, or any really representation of an average Black person or family living in Western New York or Central New York during those time periods. What life was like for them. What was it like? Or I guess, how are they going to depict this at the museum? Um, Cheney McKnight from Not Your Mama's History, which is based in New York City, uh, will be participating. And she's putting together with some collaborators uh, a sort of a situation where a Southern Black family and a Northern Black family come into contact.
0: And so I wonder, what were those interactions like? What were the cultural differences they encountered?
3: You know, the black experience um, in 1865 in the United States was not monolithic. You had people who were just getting their bearings, um, realizing that slavery was ended and looking for family members who had been sold off. And a northern family that may have um, been living under relative freedom at the time. And as she described it, a kind of cultural clash in their coming into contact with
0: one another. So, what prompted this change? What brought on this this decision to to have them celebrate Juneteenth?
3: Well, the leadership at the museum says that they've known that a change in uh, representation has needed to happen for a while, but all across the board, cultural institutions are having really a, a moment of reckoning with race and racial representation. Um, so, this is you know we're we're in a moment where we're seeing a lot of institutions um, taking a moment to see how they can better serve their audiences and better serve the reality. And Cheney McKnight, uh, for example, pointed to the Whitney Museum in Louisiana as a history museum that is really doing things correctly. Um, They've got an exclusive focus on enslaved people on a plantation.
1: I've never been to a
0: plantation where they were really straight up. And I think it's very important to have... Uh, descendants, descendants of the enslaved community present in the conversation. So can we see this as a move toward more inclusive programming like at the Whitney Plantation? My understanding is that the leadership
3: at the uh, Genesee Village, is, th- that is their intention. Um, they've discussed a number of roadblocks in recent years. Some of that has to do with funding. There's a number of things at play, but from conversations with them, they're they are open and interested in, in solving this. You know, representation isn't a small issue for for Genesee Museum. They annually host 18 to 20,000 school children. Four to 5,000 of those are from Rochester Public Schools and um, those schools serve 53% black students and 33% Latino students. So, you know, these kids are are coming to a museum that is promising them a, an accurate representation of history and would benefit from seeing their histories reflected.
0: Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Rebecca Rafferty is the life editor at City Magazine. Her story is called Genesee Country Village and Museum Reckons with Representation. You can read it in this month's edition of City, or find it on their website, rockcitynews.org. You've been listening to Earshot from WXXI News. And we want to know, what are the stories you're thinking about? What are you talking about in your community? Drop us a line at earshot at wxxi.org. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast to keep up to date on local news. Find even more on our website, WXXINews.org. Music this week from Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. I'm Veronica Volk. Thanks for listening. This program is a production of member-supported WXXI Public Broadcasting, Rochester, New York.